Another lesson that we can learn from Amazon and Apple and some other wildly successful companies is that making things easy for your customers and also easier for your mm. employees uh, is a big part of being successful. Looking at every mm. little element of customer effort, uh, every mouse mm. click, every scroll, uh, companies dismiss it. They say, oh, it's only a few keystrokes. It's an extra click. Who cares? It's not important. Was it, oh, security, oh, compliance. Well, yeah, we've got to have customers click on these five things uh, because it's a compliance issue. Uh, when you're doing that, you're going to not get as many sales, not get as many customers. Make things easy. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Roger Dooley. His focus is on helping you market and sell better using brain science and behavioral research. Welcome to our show, Roger. Thanks again, Shahid. No problem, my friend. No problem, my friend. It's great to have you. Is this a unique term? Because maybe it's my ignorance, but I never heard neuromarketing before? It's been a concept that's been around for probably a little bit longer than 20 years now. It's, I missed it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but it's been on the, on the margin of mainstream marketing. Initially, in the yeah. early days of neuromarketing, there were providers that claimed to be able to understand what your customers' brains were doing by using either tools like fMRI, magnetic resonance imaging, or EEG, putting caps on your customer's head and showing them your ad, your content, your product. And in the early years, some of these claims were exaggerated, shall we say, where the, the vendors of these services probably got a little bit ahead of the science. But over time, that's changed in a couple of ways. First of all, when I brought up my book, Brainfluence, and that's been out now for about going on 12, 13 years, that incorporated not just the sort of tools of neuroscience, EEG and measuring uh, what's happening in the customer's brain, but also behavioral science, because to me, it's all one continuum. Uh, what we're really trying to do is understand how our customers' brains work, how they'll react to our marketing efforts and so on. And to just limit yourself to one kind of tool is, I think, a mistake. And also for much of neuromarketing's history, the only companies that could afford to do neuromarketing studies using some of these more exotic technologies were big brands, Coca-Colas, BMWs, and mm. so on. And um, those were largely inaccessible to uh, entrepreneurs and even small and medium businesses. That was another reason why when I was writing Brainfluence, I started off down that sort of neuroscience path and realized that it was going to not help all that many businesses. And so I incorporated a lot of behavioral science into it because those tools are available to any size business from a one person startup to the biggest corporation. Excellent. So when it comes to neuromarketing, what recent discoveries have you has caught your attention and how are these findings changing the game for entrepreneurs? I think the biggest change began a little bit before the pandemic, but then was accelerated by the pandemic. And that is using mm -hmm. uh, different technologies that don't require you to recruit subjects, bring them into a lab 
and strap them into uh, either an EEG headset or something else or in yeah. front of an expensive eye tracking system because oh, although companies were already introducing some tools that could be done remotely, when the pandemic hit, suddenly you couldn't bring people into a lab mm -hmm. and test them. Uh, and so uh, it really uh, gave a lot of impetus for all of the companies to focus on these easier uh, remote technologies that have the added benefit of being significantly cheaper. For instance, eye tracking used to be done primarily using uh, these really either expensive glasses or uh, expensive uh, uh, eye tracking little camera things that would sit next to a monitor. And uh, th those cost thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars. So needless to say, studies were expensive and you had to have somebody come into your lab to do that stuff. But uh, for years now, Companies have been doing eye tracking using webcams, device cams, the camera in your iPhone even, and it is not as precise as the super duper glasses or other tracking devices, but in many cases, it's good enough. So that's one example. Uh, another example uh, is uh, measuring uh, brain activity. Uh, that used to be done probably f mostly in commercial neuromarketing studies via EEG. fMRI is so expensive and so time-consuming. That's mainly been a tool for academics where they have access to the devices uh, it, in the university. But uh, EEG uh, has been around for a while. And I think that over time, uh, companies have gotten much better at it than in the early days as far as being able to interpret the results in a reliable way. But even that required a rather complex setup of putting a cap on a customer. And it was usually done in a lab setting. If it was done out in the real world, there was like a big heavy belt pack or something that would go on and consumer would walk around a supermarket wearing an EEG cap, which as you can imagine, isn't the most realistic of mm -hmm. techniques. <clears throat> Excuse me. But more recently, uh, companies like Immersion have come out with uh, measuring consumer response, customer response, using tools like smartwatches and fitness trackers, something that everybody has. Uh, all you need is one of many varieties of smartwatch or fitness tracker and an Apple or Android phone, uh, and you can get measures of what they use, our immersion, which is an emotional engagement with whatever is happening, and psychological safety. Does the person feel more safe or more threatened? And this is so unobtrusive that you can use it to measure what's happening while people walk around a store, even measure training. Accenture, the big consulting company, mm -hmm. is using uh, these devices and the software to uh, measure how well training is going. Is the trainer doing a good job? Where are the audience members tuning out? Uh, do they feel safe? Or if, if you've ever been in a training session where suddenly the trainer starts asking people questions, you can imagine that might threaten some people who are sitting there quietly absorbing and then suddenly, oh my God, he's going to ask me a question. So anyway, this the, the big change has been to faster, cheaper technologies that can be done anywhere. In fact, one of the more recent and impressive developments is for eye tracking, where we're using machine learning. Now AI can predict what humans would look at in an ad or in a video. And the companies that offer these services typically claim uh, between 90 and even 95 plus percent accuracy in predicting what humans would look at. Only there are no humans involved. What they did is what they, uh, these companies have done is fed thousands of existing eye tracking studies into the AI, let it learn what people looked at, and then it can predict fairly accurately. Now it's not always perfect, 
there, I've seen situations that it just got it wrong. But nevertheless, if you have a very limited budget, this is probably better than nothing. But at least it gives you some kind of a basis for making a decision. And Tamisha had one of the key things about all these technologies is in typical marketing decisions in companies and even other business decisions, often they are not data-based. What they've got to decide which ad campaign to go with, which image to put on the website, you know, all these kinds of questions. You can't do big, expensive studies. You can't afford it. So what happens? You bring people into a conference room and everybody says their thing. And then either maybe there's a big consensus or maybe you get a hippo decision where the highest paid person in the organization, hippo, makes the decision. Not because that person has such brilliant insights, but because they're the boss. And some of these very inexpensive tools can take that decision away from the hippo and at least give you some sort of a rational basis for making the decision. Hey, can you give some examples of what they're tracking with the eye tracking exactly? Yeah, the eye tracking has been used for years and years, decades even. Mm -hmm. I recall back in my relative youth, I was seeing some primitive eye tracking studies done of what people looked at as, but normally, uh, companies use eye tracking to determine what people are looking at when they view, for instance, a print ad. That would be one, one use. You're going to put an ad in magazines. You want to, are people looking at what you want them to look at, or are they been dis distracted by something in the background that so uh, in they a shouldn't study. really be paying you? So yeah. that, that's one use. It can be used in videos now. You can track where people are, what people are looking at when they're watching a video. Again, this is important if you are either a content creator or if you are an advertising creator where you're creating ad videos, again, you wanna know what people are looking at. When you expect them to look mm. at the company logo and name, uh, are they doing that or are they looking at the fluffy bunny in the corner and so mm. on. So I think uh, eye tracking is a very powerful tool. Website design too. When people go to your homepage, what are they looking at? And it's surprising how people don't look at what you expect them or hope them, hope that they'll look at. They do look at different stuff. You have this big, bold headline and you think they're going to be looking at it. And instead, they're looking at a design element that attracts their attention. The so human. eye tracking could be a very valuable tool. And again, it used to be something that was really used by bigger companies who could afford to do it. And even then, only on somewhat bigger problems, like picking an image for a particular web page, not so much. Even that would be overkill from an expense standpoint. But now with these uh, both remote tools that you can get, to 20 people to do an eye tracking study in, you get the results back in 24 hours for relatively little money, or even the predictive tools where you can get results back instantaneously just about and very cheaply. So these let you use it for a much greater variety of circumstances, yeah. individual web pages, so, little print ads that maybe have a whole bunch of variations and so on. Yeah. So these studies are conducted in a controlled environment. No, <laughs> not necessarily, not? Chad. No, yeah, because, uh, and, and that's, because, that, that's because no way, but it's a normal environment. So a control environment that the actual user that they're studying has to be recorded with a device while they're looking at a YouTube video or a video, looking at a magazine. So it's in controlled in that sense, right? Like they're watching them. It's oh, not yeah, just they're, by they're looking at the their thing. eyes. 
oh no, they're aware that this is happening. You're not doing it remotely, like looking at customers in the store uh, and seeing what they're looking at. Yeah. Uh, but it's only semi-controlled, which is actually a good thing because you know mm -hmm. if you bring people into a lab, you put them into a dark room where they're completely isolated and all they can see is the what you want them to look at. That's a good thing in one sense. They're not distracted, so you get good data in that way. But also, it's not how anybody is going to be doing it in the wild. If they're going, if somebody's going to be watching your commercial on TV, yeah. uh, they're going to be in a, a brightly lit room with distractions and yeah. so on. And typically, the eye yeah. tracking can also tell when somebody when somebody's gaze leaves the screen completely, that'll show up in the data. If they just uh, look completely off uh, the screen because their dog walked in the room or something, they want to see what was going on, then that'll register. But to me, being able to do these studies in real environments, and of course, the biometric studies uh, that I mentioned using smartwatches, these can be done in uh, just about any real environment, and they're not a controlled environment, which for the results is a good thing. But there's no way as of today, that they can study a human being's eyes or the movement of the eyes to determine what kind of shopper they are or what their preference would be. You know what I mean? That's really deep. There's no technology. No, not, no you, the eye tracking only tells you what people are looking at. Now, yeah. you could make some judgments. If you had uh, six products on a page and people gazed at one particular product or two similar products compared to the other ones, you could infer that those products were more interest to that customer than the other products. So uh, mm. you can make some inferences, but it's not uh, mind reading. Not purely based on that. For example, you know how lie detecting uh, devices, they check your heart rate, whatever, to see if you're lying. I was just thinking, is there a technology where they see the movement of the eye to determine if they are a high intent buyer or low, like something on a deeper yeah, sense. Yeah, I don't know if, I haven't seen any studies on that, Shahed. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. It could be that mm -hmm. people are doing this, but there are other tools they can use as well. You mentioned lie detectors. Actually, uh, lie detection uh, using typically galvanic skin response and a few other biometric measures is not necessarily mm -hmm. a good way to detect lies. There mm -hmm. could be a variety of things that the individual has going on that can give them either false positive or false negative readings. So mm. I do not mm -hmm. recommend using lie detectors for anything, even though uh, they are still used it's by used. Uh, some yeah. companies, by some security mm. agencies and so on, but that is not mm. reliable. But uh, neuromarketing companies for years have used biometric measurements, things like heart rate, skin conductance, breathing rate, even body temperature. And by uh, integrating that knowledge, they say they can make judgments about how customers might act or how they feel about what they're viewing. They might be viewing a product, they might be viewing an ad. Uh, and you can see how those metrics change as, say if you're watching a 60 second TV commercial, you can see how people's biometric measurements are changing as different things happen on the screen. When something surprising happens, you'll see those measurements jump and you can see where they might be tuning out, where they're not really engaged with the content. So biometrics do have a purpose in this. and Again, that's the really sophisticated biometrics have mainly been done in a lab setting where you can actually connect mm -hmm. multiple monitors to Got people. It. But the again, the smartwatch is really a biometric measurement that they're using to infer brain activity. They can actually see brain activity by measuring what they can. They are inferring what's going on in the brain. They've supposedly spent millions of dollars 
partially funded by the U.S. government uh, for military purposes to correlate the measurements that they get from a person's wrist uh, to what's going on in mm. their brain. Hmm. So when it comes to the realm of behavioral science, is there a less known psychological principle that a high output individual could use to boost their productivity or basically make smarter decisions? That's hard to say. I think a lot of the behavioral science uh, that I work with is geared more at uh, understanding how other people think and how you can maybe be more persuasive. And uh, that's the sort of work that uh, my work is focused on, uh, beginning with the uh, original principles of Robert Cialdini, the six now seven principles of influence. Uh, and uh, one thing I can mention, Chad, behavioral science has gotten a, a bad name in recent years because some behavioral science findings appear to, first of all, people, other scientists could not replicate those findings. And in some cases, there was what appeared to be actual fraud taking place. Now, the actual mm. fraud instances seem to be very few, but there was one fairly recent study a few, year, well, a few years back that was widely circulated and even applied in real world situations that suggested that if uh, you had people sign uh, their name that, saying that they would be truthful before they filled out a form, that they would be more truthful than if that signature was at the bottom, which is where it typically puts it. You fill out the form and then it's at the bottom, you sign it, and that's saying that, yes, I've answered everything truthfully. Now, that's appealing mm -hmm. just from an intuitive standpoint, right? You're making this commitment up front. Uh, it's priming your brain to be more truthful. And the some researchers published this study. It was widely cited. It was even applied in one government. I might be the government of Ghana. I'm not sure. In an effort to improve tax compliance, and when in that case, when the scientists who were trying to apply this to this real-world tax situation studied, they actually compared the different methods with that signature at the top and without. They couldn't find any difference. And they were thinking that they did something wrong. It turned out that the research itself was apparently, first of all, could not be replicated. And other scientists couldn't replicate it. And that there was actually what appeared to be fraudulent data in there. And there was a Harvard scientist mm. that's, well, last I checked, uh, she was on some kind of leave while this was all being sorted out. So uh, this, and the bigger thing, though, is just lack of replication, where what's happened is somebody publishes uh, this really fascinating behavioral science study that seems actionable. It gives uh, you a tool that you could use as a marketer, as an advertiser, as a salesperson. Um, and then later on, uh, other scientists go back and try and do that same experiment. And they can't do it. They can't get the same results, which is probably a good indication it's not going to work very well in the real world if even in controlled scientific settings, mm -hmm. uh, scientists can't get the same results. Now, that in some cases... There, there's a few reasons that could happen. Just a little, forgetting about the absolute fraudulent data piece, there are occasionally researchers will push the data so hard they'll massage the data. There's a te technique called p-hacking where they go back to all the data and find something that correlates so that they can publish a study where if you look at 100 variables, you'll probably get a false correlation on something just from randomness. I used to be in the mail order business, mm -hmm. in the direct marketing business, and we would test 20 lists. 
And every now and then, one of them would have a, really a, quite a positive result unexpectedly. And then we'd go out and we'd mail to that list uh, a bigger number of uh, catalogs, and it didn't perform as well. And that was just one of these sort of random things that if you collect enough data points, every now and then you're going to get some weird outliers that you just, you know, you can't replicate. And that's one mm -hmm. problem. And the other problem is there's been this tendency to run a study of, that uses 50 Ivy League undergraduates as the subjects, and then come up with the conclusion that this is what human behavior looks like. And when you've got a, a very small population of very similar people, it's very hard to extend that. If you forget about going out into the real world, if you conducted that same study using graduate students in a public university, you could get very different answers or you know, very different results. And what's happening there is oh, you, have to be, you have to be careful as a business person if you're trying to apply these studies, it's important to see, okay, how robust was the study to begin with? Has it been replicated? Have other people done this? Like for instance, Bob Cialdini's six and now seven principles, those have not only been replicated by scientists around the world, they've been replicated by marketers around the world. Everybody uses social proof, right? That's one of his, where if you go to just about any company's site, you may see 1 million sold, or we have, my newsletter has 30,000 subscribers. This is travel sites. 50 people booked this hotel in the last 24 hours. These are all using social proof. And they do that because it works. They've done A-B tests. They know that it works. And the same thing for many of his other principles, authority, where having somebody who is a recognized expert or a celebrity endorse your product is going to help you sell more product. But when you get to some of these other sort of surprising studies where, wow, you know, putting the type in blueprint instead of in black print caused sales to double in this experiment, you know, or then that's time to sit back and say, okay, first of all, does this make a lot of sense? And it could be intuitive, but that doesn't mean it's real. And then how many people were involved? What kind of people were they? Have other studies produced a similar result? Uh, and if it's just a one-off that produces a surprising result, then chances are it might be questionable. So don't base any business decisions on that. To me, the, mm -hmm. the whole value of using behavioral science for business people, whether they are entrepreneurs or in a large company, is that you don't have to conduct the experiments yourself to some degree. You can start from this knowledge that comes from research, comes from other companies testing and so on, and apply it in your business with a relatively high degree of confidence that it's going to work. And having said that, Shahed, I'll also say that never assume that because something worked for somebody else, it's going to work in your exact situation because it does, it's not going to work every single time. You need to do A-B testing or some kind of testing to confirm that it's going to work. It takes social proof. It works for almost everybody. But there, I've talked to many conversion experts, people who run conversion optimization businesses, helping customers maximize sales from their website. And they'll tell you, gee, a social proof almost always works, but maybe one times out of 10, it doesn't work. Maybe the product uh, is just different. I can think of some logical examples. If you are selling a unique uh, wristwatch that's really expensive, costs six figures in dollars, uh, you don't want to advertise how many you've sold. You want each buyer to think that they are the only one on the planet that's mm. going to have that. That's, that's logical. But there, there can be other reasons why social proof doesn't work as well. But it's still important to test. But 
uh, behavioral science gives you a big starting point. And that's why big companies today, Shahed, uh, almost all of them have a behavioral science unit. Sometimes they're called nudge units. Uh, and what they are there for, they have one or several behavioral scientists who assist their business units in applying behavioral science to improving sales to customers, improving uh, human, uh, their human resources uh, results, trying to get increased employee engagement. Uh, if you're trying to change employee behaviors in some way, uh, trying to find a way to nudge them into the right behavior. And so that's the real value of behavioral science. You don't have mm. to do all of the research work yourself. Still test, you've got a much better starting point than if you just sit around in a room with a few team members. Oh, no, I appreciate that, Roger. There's a lot of information there and I'm sure it's going to help people. You pointed them into uh, specific directions, which is very important. The important part is that you don't need to um, do all these major studies. You can actually find this information out in the market, especially if you watch the bigger brands. Oh, absolutely. And I, I recommend the, uh, constantly that people do that. One company to watch is Amazon. They are constantly mm. running hundreds of tests. Even today, when was the last time Amazon redesigned their website? Uh, People say, I don't know, they never have they? And that's because they never so. have done a big website rollout. They look at every little detail and change it uh, if they find that something tests better. Uh, I remember years ago, I saw, usually you're not aware of it as a customer, but I happen to notice that where originally they had Audible and Kindle version of versions of books, yes. something that changed to audiobook and then to uh, ebook. And I thought that was interesting. And I wonder if that was going to be, I thought, that's odd. A couple weeks later, I noticed that the audiobook uh, stayed as audiobook. It didn't say audible, but the ebook went back to Kindle. And my interpretation of that was that they had done some kind of split testing on that. And they found that people click less on oh, the Audible link because of the, oh man, I'd have to subscribe or there's something, I don't have Audible, I'm not, I won't click on that compared to Kindle where everybody probably has a Kindle reader of some kind on their device or on their laptop or whatever. And for them, just showing, hey, you can get this downloaded right to your Kindle from here makes sense where the Audible was maybe turning off some of the customers who weren't sure if they could even get the product. Uh, that's that's my guess, awesome. but who knows? But you can see yeah. these little things happening sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so there, another other companies, the big travel sites have behavioral science units. Uh, you know, Booking.com, for example, Good. Uh, they use behavioral science, and that's why you see all these elements there of scarcity. Only two seats left at this price. Only one hotel room left at this price. That's employing scarcity. Another Cialdini principle. And whether mm. all these companies are doing that in an honest and ethical fashion, that. We'll uh, leave that one untouched. To me, I think they are in the gray zone there because if you get that one last hotel room and come back the next day, you might find another hotel room at that same price, mm. a very similar price. But regardless, yeah. they're using scarcity. They use social proof. Yes. Uh, they use uh, authority where they'll have some travel site recommended this uh, particular hotel. They, uh, they use these tools because they work. And all those companies like Amazon do a lot of testing. If you see something on their site for more than a couple of weeks, it's there because it improved their sales. Perfect. Thank you, Roger. It was awesome meeting you today. 
and learning all this information that you shared. I feel there was a lot of value in this episode to really pay attention to the information that you shared and the pointers that you provided. We well, could do I, a I lot so, of Fred, research. I, Fred, let me make one sure. more point here uh, to uh, mm. uh, leave the audience with. And sure. so this is something that uh, grows out of behavioral science. But uh, to me, another lesson that we can learn from Amazon and Apple and some other wildly successful companies is that making things easy for your customers and also easier for your mm. employees uh, is a big part of being successful. Looking at every mm. little element of customer effort, uh, every mouse mm. click, every scroll, uh, is companies dismiss it. They say, oh, it's only a few keystrokes. It's an extra click. Who cares? It's not important. Was it, uh, security, uh, compliance. Well, yeah, we've got to have customers click on these five things uh, to, because it's a compliance issue. Uh, when you're doing that, you're going to not get as many sales, not get as many customers. Make things easy. And again, look to Amazon. Uh, look to Apple, how easy their products mm. are to set up and use. They know that by creating an effortless customer experience, which is pretty much what my friction book focuses on, by creating an effortless customer experience, they will gain long-term loyal customers. And they do. Perfect. Awesome, Roger. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on our show and sharing all the gold and definitely keep in touch. Definitely, Shahad. Thank you for having me on and talk again anytime.